If you're looking for a story, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Storytelling with Seth. This is episode number 93. My genuine pleasure to share with you a great conversation that I had with Joe Witt and Rhea Brago. We talked about their amazing new project, The Sprite and The Gardener, which is a phenomenal book, a great story about friendship captured in loving colors. And I think a really amazing work that they do a wonderful job of describing and breaking down for me and you as part of this episode. Join me now for a great conversation with Joe Witt and Rhea Brago about The Sprite and The Gardener. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. My name is Seth Singleton. I'm your host, and I am the lucky one who gets to sit down with Joe Witt and Rhea Abrego. And we're here to talk about the Sprite and the Gardener. And this is a story that I think when you're done hearing about it, you are going to be thankful and grateful and probably going to bother me about where you can find it, which I guarantee by the end of the show, these fine folks are going to let you know. Really quick, let me go ahead and introduce first Rhea Brago. Rhea, how are you today? I'm doing good. Wonderful. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking about your book. And Joe Witt. Joe, how are you, sir? Oh, yeah, doing good. Doing good. Wonderful. Uh, thank you both so much for coming on. Uh, I, I'm always thankful when Oni Press sends me a heads up about a really great book. And I loved reading yours. I, I love the story and the characters. And I was wondering if you could each give me, in your words, what the story is to kind of set it up for everybody listening. And then we can move into some, I'm hoping, really fun questions. Rhee, can I start with you? Sure. How would you describe Sprite and the Gardener? Um, Sprite and the Gardener is, it follows this Sprite named Wisteria. Uh, she's kind of new to the area and she's not really doing so well clicking with the others and she ends up um, becoming interested in this this gardener who also lives in the town and so she sort of learns more about the area through this but also about this uh, this gardening ability that has been lost to time to the sprites and then Joe would you phrase it in the same terms was there would there be anything else that you would add to that description to I mean, I think story in any way. <laughs> oh yeah, I think Re pretty much summed it all up. I mean, I guess I'd like to add that the Sprite and the Gardener is a story about connecting with people. I think, just like on a on a grand on a grander scale, I guess throughout the book, I feel like it's a story about connections and opening up. And I think that's really important because I felt that that was also like something that I picked up very early on. And uh, Rhea, I think you set it up really nicely with the idea of Wisteria just isn't quite connecting with others yet. She really introduces herself as someone who hasn't really made any sort of uh, developed relationship, whether it's friendship, uh, association, kinship in any way. And it seems like at the start of the story, she might've found someone who can, you know, or a group that might be able to offer that for? I think so. Um, in, in general, I think she's just searching for this and trying to find where this is, or like who's going to provide this for her. And I think 
then it would be really easy to move into one of the first questions that I had. And that's the idea that I always loved it when I was reading as a kid, this comic book that described the idea of heaven and hell in the details. And it showed something kind of sneaky in the shadows. And I feel like the Sprite uh, and the gardener and the characters in it live in the details. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Wisteria and her friends, new friends, is that they're, they're there in the garden. They're there hiding between the petals and the leaves. And only if you look closely, only if opportunity presents it, only if perhaps maybe like uh, all mythical things, if you sort of get lucky, if you have that accidental discovery or they, they maybe just aren't paying attention and allow themselves to be seen, you can discover this really beautiful world. And a lot of stories have uh, addressed the idea of mythical creatures or um, different ideas that once existed and the arrival of man changed it. And um, they make a point of describing scenarios where humans arrived and magic is pushed to the outskirts or the woods. Your characters instead sort of become invisible. They sort of blend into everything. They actually become the, the wonderful creatures keeping things alive, but, but hiding in those details. Um, was that a natural choice just based on concepts already established about mythology or uh, was there some other process behind putting the characters in this situation and having them exist this way? Um, I feel like it came about kind of naturally uh, in terms of, in the original concept, it was actually just a single page story. And um, at that point, it was just wisteria. She was in the bushes, basically. Um, so this kind of grew out of that. But also, I wanted to explore the idea that when humans take over something, the things that live there usually just have to deal with it. Like um, when you build a city where there wasn't one before, um, pigeons, insects, whatever else lived there, they continue living there, but their lives and routines and where they get food, that sort of thing all changes. But I was also thinking about when, when I grew up, I, there was like a field behind the house and you, sometimes you'd find weird little animals. And so even when nothing was there, you were always thinking that something was there, that you were going to see something exciting or magical. I, I love that feeling and description. I grew up in what was at the time, like a, a very small bedroom community and it, it got bigger. But when I moved there, I lived in a housing development that on three sides had fields. And every day my sister and I would walk to school and there was like one where there was a walnut orchard that we could cut through. And, and over the next five to seven years, you saw each field sort of disappear and, and get developed. But before that, there was always that wonderful sort of mystery. Like I loved running through a walnut orchard, especially in like September, October, because we'd have really big fog move in. And it was it was sort of mythical feeling, you know, the idea that uh, some of my favorite stories where you walk into a fog in one place and you come out somewhere else. So I, I love that idea. Uh, and it, it connects with something I remember as a, as a kid sort of looking for where there is uh, myth or magic, maybe hidden somewhere, or if I somehow wonderfully stumbled into it. Joe, I was curious about your thoughts as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think re really, uh, yeah put it very well um i think also just uh i think i like the idea of um humans coming and magic leaving in a sort of more passive way rather than like 
humans actively like stomping out the magic or whatever so it's just sort of like the you know the ending of like the sprites handling all the plants just sort of happens in the background without much fanfare i do enjoy that i mean it feels as though there there was less of a destructive uh feeling when the humans arrived and and more of just a, an adaptation on the, the right. part of those who'd been there before yeah Right. I know that that sort of touches on the original idea. Can you tell me more about any of the other ideas that came about with the Sprite Gardener as they connect to this or uh, that also were sort of part of forming this story and its structure? Because I was caught up by the fact that when I was glancing through the bios, you're both uh, illustrators. you're an illustrator, Joe, in the uh, bio, it describes you more as a comic artist. So you're both coming at this with a, a very visual approach, I would imagine, but you're also collaborating on this story together. And in that process, I was curious just how else you structured this world and if there were any other factors that you knew were going to be foundational, I guess might be the best word. I feel like the largely between the two of us, um, we started with the visuals really Uh, We had this, like, what we wanted to portray, a lot of lush nature, these magical little beings, that kind of thing. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to word all of this. That's okay. Take your time. I'm also well aware of the fact that this whole point of the conversations I have are about storytelling and about art and craft. And that's not always easy to describe. (laughs) You can write something down, you can create something. And afterwards, someone's like, so how'd that happen? And you're like, oh, you want me to talk about it. And that can get really (laughs) difficult. I mean, at least for me, sometimes I'm like, well, it felt really good. And I liked it. Um, I guess I'm intrigued maybe to to help. um, You say this started out as a, a one page idea. And I was wondering maybe how it expounded from that. Were there already some of those foundations already in that one page? Or did they grow from ideas or Maybe that's a helpful starting point. I'm not sure. I could have just made it completely worse. (laughs) No, no, it's okay. Um, The original page, actually, it doesn't lay very much of this out at all. Um, The original page is just about this sprite that lives in a garden, and the garden is thriving because of her. And the reason that she's doing this is because she likes to see how it makes the gardener feel, and she likes to see the gardener smile, essentially. But... Beyond that, we pretty much built it from the ground up once we started working together. Well, I, I really like that idea. Joe, anything to add on that? Uh, I, I never want to sort of like feel like that's the one answer and then, and then slide through thinking I've got another question because sometimes if I sit for just a minute, uh, who knows what might happen? Oh, no, I, I get you. Um, I feel like uh, Reese definitely more the person to answer those questions because like I feel like she was sort of the person who um, I guess like birthed the idea, like with that one page comic. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like she has a better perspective on that. Well, in in that case, let me try and um, be aware of that. And instead of looking at a, a list of questions, start from this point and ask, how is it that this story came from one page turned into this, beautiful graphic novel I I was really grateful to enjoy 
and maybe how the both of you ended up collaborating on it and turning it into the larger book. Maybe can you describe sort of how you either, did you guys already know each other before this project started? Oh yeah, yeah, we did. Um, we went to college together and uh, sort of met there and um, <clears throat> we just sort of just uh, found out we both liked making fan art and stuff. And I feel like over time we would just kind of collaborate on just uh, sharing ideas and uh, just drawing together. Yeah, I guess, uh, Re, if you want to talk about like um, when you got the email about uh, maybe like pursuing a graphic novel and stuff. Yeah, um, I had actually worked with Oni Press before on some really short bonus comics in the back of some floppies. But um, from there, I was asked if I wanted to pitch anything original. And at the time, I didn't really have very many ideas. And this was one that I kind of had just there on the back burner that I thought would be worth exploring. And I remember my fear with it was that I tend to get a little too precious about things. And so I thought that bringing Joe in, who he's, he's a little funnier. Um, he's, he's a lot better at making things immediately engaging, I think. And so I invited him on and they were cool with the idea. So that, that's what we did. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, I really appreciate that explanation and description for me. It helps. I, I missed that through the, just, uh, through the bios and, and things that you had attended school together and, and had, you know, already done some, uh, you know, just sort of hanging out. I mean, it almost sounds like an art jam. Um, like when music's, you know, musicians sit down and just sort of hang out. Um, and it sounds like you had this idea, you'd, you'd done some work for Oni. How did that uh, occur that you were able to do that bonus work in the, uh, the back of the floppies? Was it through a connection or through just, you know, pitching or? I think it was probably, um, I actually think it was Katie Farina. Um, she also worked with Oni for a while and I think she had recommended me for it. That's huge. And then the response was, well, would you like to do anything? Which is always a, a nice sort of bonus follow-up conversation if you've produced work for someone. And the response is, well, did you want to do anything else? I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, best case really scenario. Door, right? <laughs> uh, up until this point, uh, Joe, had you uh, also had the chance to, you know, work with any other companies with uh, comic art? Was this sort of uh, an intro for you? Um, onto the scene or what was your history with comics and production before this project? Um, I guess prior to this, I had um, <clears throat> mostly just uh, like uploaded just uh, like fan comics to like Tumblr and stuff. But um, I had worked with, um, there was an anthology called Sweaty Palms and it was like a, a anthology about like making uh autobio comics about like anxiety and stuff and i was lucky to work with them for a little bit or um just for like uh the one anthology and then i think i did like various like small time things just uh with different um like anthologies and zines and stuff so nothing nothing huge so uh only uh 
doing Sprite in the Gardener with Oni was uh, my first, like, I guess, foray into big comics. I understand. Um, and then what was the timeline like from when you uh, brought this idea before uh, Oni? And Rhea, I think you brought up something really great, which I can connect to, which is sometimes there's something that I've created where I, I would think about doing more with it, but I'm also very aware of how, how just good it is the way it is. Um, <laughs> and then what do I want to do with it afterwards or, you know, bringing it to the attention of someone else. Once you've brought this to Oni and brought Joe on and Oni gives you the green light, did you have a time frame that you had to execute things in? Was there a, a guaranteed deadline or was this a project that you had little bit more freedom with and, and lacks uh, deliverable. There was actually a surprising amount of freedom, I guess, because um, I don't know if it was just because it was a shorter book or what, but I feel like this has been in the making for a couple of years now. Um, and also things got a little weird in the middle because at the time we were working on this, Oni and Lionforge actually went through a merger and so things got a little scattered for a while during that. Um, but really, they were very willing to work with me on a lot of fronts. Wow, that's really wonderful um, and, and great to hear. And, and I am actually aware I was associated with another company that was working with uh, Oni and Lion Forge maybe about a year, year and a half ago. And at the time, that was a big part of the discussion was the idea behind um, there's been a merger and that meant certain things that had been in the works prior were sort of in flux and that created just uh, some differentiations between what had been going on to how things were running and who do you talk to and where do you go if you have questions and things like that. Um, but it sounds like the freedom was just a, a, a benefit no matter what was going on with that merger or other factors. You, you had the time and you said it was a couple of years. Could you frame what was that roughly two to three or? I'm, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> um, I feel like uh, from maybe about two years, Joe, do you know, I feel like at this point, it feels like it's been going on for 10 years. So. <laughs> well, the last yeah. year is like dog years. So that's yeah. okay for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I want to say we probably started writing it around, um, maybe like early 2019, like we started like seriously scripting may maybe 2019 or 2018. Okay. I mean, I think that's helpful for, you know, people to keep in mind too. I just, I have a friend I'm going to, a classmate I'm going to talk with soon who recently published a book and she, she points out in almost every discussion I've, I've been reading up about it, that it took her 10 years to write the book. And that's something that really sticks with her. But I think when you're working on something you really care about, uh, there's the time that it's taking and there's also the time you're taking to get it done right. And if you want to do it the way you want to execute it, uh, sort of time starts becoming as much of a factor when it's about getting it right. Am I pretty close on that? I think so. But mm. I think also part of it was... Um... I think just a lot was going on because I was actually working on art for it when um, the whole COVID thing hit. And so that also slowed things down significantly. Um, really, it was just, it was in flux a lot throughout its lifespan. Understood. 
Understood. Well, moving back into the, the story of, of the sprites and wisteria, uh, you brought her into being in, in one page and then brought Joe on when it was time to expand it. Were you already working um, before Joe came into the picture uh, and was officially on the project on who wisteria could potentially be beyond uh, the character who's looking also for a connection with people like her, but also starts to first develop a connection with the humans, which she's taught to sort of hide and avoid. Um, was there a lot about her that need to be discovered before uh, you started working with Joe or maybe after Joe joined on and you guys were talking about what this story will end up being about? It was uh, mostly after Joe came on. Um, okay. I really just invited Joe. Basically, um, I got the email from Oni and I thought about it and decided I, I probably needed help with this. So I went ahead and asked them if it would be okay to have a co-writer. And from then, just went ahead and invited Joe on. And I, I think um, one of the things that I, I really sort of was immediately attracted to about this story is that the setting for me started to raise questions, like if there was any foundation in reality. A lot of times it can be fun to recall. Uh, I moved around a little bit when we were younger and between those different locations, there are ideas that I might have for a story that they fit better in one of those places I lived, maybe then compared to where I'm currently living. Meadow Green, for example, is a lovely play on words. <laughs> it works very well with the story because it also you know, has, a, has an irony to it. And then it starts to, at some point through the help of Wisteria, take on more of an appearance that associates it with its name. Was there any basis that, that was used for creating this world or did it purely spring from imagination? And I'd love to hear both of your thoughts. Uh, Meadow Green is the name at least, that's actually a street we used to live on. Um, it was a pretty that's cute awesome. neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, I love that name. Um, and so it was a nice little neighborhood. And in the beginning, I think we kind of had these grand expectations and I thought I'd have this big garden and everything, but the house we were renting wasn't super ideal and we moved after a year and none of that ever really came to fruition. That's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was, oh, oh sorry. sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to just say, Joe, anything to chime in there? Oh, yeah. I was just um, like, it really, like, it seemed so good when we got that house, but it was uh, just very creepy. Um, there was like, <laughs> I think there was a hole in the roof or something. Somehow, I'm pretty sure at some point in our time there, like a raccoon got in the roof. And like, I know that the, yeah, and the like the AC went out. The water. I love that there's broke. some vagary about that. We think there was a was there a raccoon? There was a raccoon. Right? We don't know. <laughs> there was a lot going on, but th there might have been a raccoon. There, there was probably a raccoon. <laughs> and there were like these kids that um, we live in Alabama, so like there were these kids that had like a four wheeler, and they looked like they were eight or something, and they were just like driving around the neighborhood, and I don't know, it was. <laughs> This is a wild time. <laughs> that's that's so I, pretty. Go ahead, Reese. <laughs> I was just gonna say. Um, and so I think, to some extent, I, I wanted to give Meadow Green. Um, I wanted to see that dream come to fruition. 
So I love that. <laughs> I mean, I have to ask though, since it, I, I didn't see it in the book, and this is not a spoiler. Okay, so don't don't anybody listening get weird with me. But I didn't see the four wheeler. Was there an attempt at any part to consider including it and uh, <laughs> the kids sort of driving around the neighborhood and just have it be this? Yeah, sorry, I couldn't hear you. It's those kids on that four wheeler riding. <laughs> sorry, what were you saying, Wisteria? I, oh, that I mean, been a I think we idea. should have. Yeah. Maybe there's always the potential for a sequel. Yeah, right? yeah, the <laughs> sequel where um, maybe they the sprites also get a four wheeler. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I need no credit for that, by the way. That's just me <laughs> feeding the fire. Oh, but you'll get the special <laughs> thanks. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty well. Hey, you know who knows what's going to come out of a conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that detail. Uh, the idea of one the raccoon, but then it was like, and then there's these kids on the four wheeler. Is that like a constant? Like, you know, when there's that neighbor who always runs a lawnmower at the same time every week, you know, and it's just sort of like the soundtrack of that part of the day, or were they just sort of random where you could 10 a.m., 9.30 p.m., that thing's running? Oh, they kept you on your toes. Yeah, it was <laughs> random. <laughs> um, I think it was mostly, I had come up with the concept um, largely the details and the writing came down to both of us. Um, he actually made a bunch of the characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like all the um, the uh, sprites that weren't Wisteria. They were, I had like uh, done preliminary designs for them, but then re went and uh, kind of finessed them. Nice. Okay. Okay. Um, so I feel like we had a question right before uh, you stepped away. Um, and I just wanted to make sure, did it feel like anything got interrupted there at all or that we had sort of covered anything about that question before we move into the next one? I feel like we had mostly covered it. Okay, wonderful. Um, so one of the things that, that I really enjoyed is that um, we've got wisteria but on the other side, uh, giving us a different perspective, we also get introduced to Elena. And I was wondering where you could uh, tell me about uh, where Elena came from, how she was introduced to the story. Because I like the, you know, the concept. You start with the sprites, but you also need um, to give them a framing of what the rest of the world's like. And Elena offers that and also gives us another take on why Meadow Green isn't actually able to live up to its name right now. Elena was actually, she changed a lot from the concept, um, largely because in the concept, she wasn't really much of a character. Uh, I feel like in the beginning, it was mostly about Wisteria and what she was doing and why she was doing it. But Elena was kind of mysterious. And so along the way, the question kind of came up. Um, well, like, what does the gardener want? She never had a say in this. And is this what she wanted? And that's basically where she came from. Answer to a question. I like that. You know, well, okay, what does the gardener think? Well, we should probably get that in there. Um, <laughs> and um, I love her story. You know, Elena's got a, a reason for being there. She's got uh, a reason why she's trying to put some effort and actually until Wisteria shows up, not very successful at gardening. Did that sort of come from what you were describing before, how when you guys were talking about Meadow Green, it, it was this place that there are things you would have loved to have done to it. 
And did she give you an opportunity to sort of uh, express not only what it's like before Wisteria arrives, uh, but then what it's like when she can start lending a hand? In some ways, I think so. Um, I'm not sure how Joe feels about that, but do you do you think it's... <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, it is that, but then also, I think for me, when I was uh, considering Elena's character, I was, uh, I guess, relating a lot to her struggle for, like, like, trying to, you know, she puts in all this effort, but because she lacks, like, the years of experience of being a gardener, she can't really bring anything to fruition. And so I feel like that's a huge struggle as a kid, like wanting to do these big things that you can see in your head and you know it's possible, but it's just like you can't really bring it there. You haven't had the experience of working through that process or even getting close and then learning what it is that you need to do differently in order to actually get there. I I guess the experience uh, that you were describing earlier right? Sounds like was right. the, the biggest factor. Um, but then uh, we do get you know, the arrival of Wisteria who, who offers that. And I, I, I was intrigued by something that um, Joe, you, you kind of brought up earlier, and I, I'd love to go back just to a little bit because it also goes into my next question is the fact that Wisteria doesn't really know why humans and sprites must be kept separate. It's not really something that she can bring into explanation. It's just one of those things that's always sort of been. And I love the idea of leaving it a mystery. It alludes to, you know, how in our own lives there, there are parts of history that in our day-to-day conversation, if someone asks and it's not something we can immediately recall, it's like, well, why are things like they are? When did that happen? And, you know, we have the beauty of the internet. We can go back and, and look things up and, and understand that. But Sometimes what we're able to recall just from memory uh, is a little bit of a mystery. And was there a conscientious choice uh, about, you know, sort of having Wisteria say, yeah, we, we just know to avoid them, you know, um, because I, I love the fact that, you know, Joe, you mentioned the idea of, of you know, the, the sprites being there, the humans coming in, but it not being a, a violent, you know, transition that they're, wasn't any violence. So I don't feel that sense of fear. Like she doesn't have this sense like they're going to hurt her or bad things will happen if the humans see you. It's just, you don't, you just don't do it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things you just don't do. Um, So was there any sort of uh, structure uh, intention, I think, uh, with that decision or did it just sort of come out of the process naturally? I feel like um, it was just a case of like, um, I think we were considering like um, there's a lot of rules in the world that feel very arbitrary and without reason. And so that was just sort of like another, another one of those rules where it's like, they just didn't know. I mean, I think uh, Re had a good perspective on this. If you want to chime in. Yeah. Um, my thinking was that honestly, maybe there never was a good reason or that it was so long in the past that everyone had already forgotten Um, the idea kind of that people do all kinds of things just because that's how it's always been done, even things that are never helpful or good or that are irrelevant at this point. And along the way, they forget that they can reassess that at any time. I think that's really important because uh, (laughs) there's just something wonderful about a mystery and getting the chance to, you know, ask the creator, like, hey, what? Tell me more. 
that's always sort of a, a fun thing. And I, I love just a little peek behind the curtain. Like, so what's going on back here? And where's that Wizard of Oz? And, you know, tell me more. Um, I was curious also if you could describe just a little bit uh, for anyone listening and anyone who has read it or will be reading uh, The Sprite and the Garner, what it is, you know, you guys sort of imagine Wisteria and the other sprites can do that allows them to take care of plants in a way that they seem to have forgotten ever since the arrival of humans. Uh, they, they have a gift and they're remembering it. When you were thinking about how it is that they actually can help the garden, is there an idea you had in mind that uh, is being expressed, but it's not always something that they can explain as a, you know, A plus B or one plus one equals two sort of idea. You know, it's sometimes things that happen can always be put into very concrete terms, but I was just curious about that idea behind it. Are they, are they giving something, offering something? Do they have something that they share as part of a um, relationship with the, the plants that, that they're doing when they're helping? I was feeling like it was kind of a, um, a natural give and take where you live within this environment. And so you take care of this environment because you need it to. And so I was thinking in terms of what they can do is kind of your general, what anybody would do in a garden, watering, fertilizing, insect stuff, uh, maybe like seed dispersal, pollination, that kind of thing. But I guess just that since they hadn't done it in so long, it kind of slips their mind how to really do this or more so they just don't see any reason to continue doing it if things seem like they're coming along well enough to get by. Okay, I understand. Joe, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we pretty much uh, covered all our bases with the the powers and stuff. I was, I was, I guess, just like imagining that since they lived in such harmony with nature that they could like get it to bend to their whim and stuff and uh, just like encourage growth and uh, mend torn leaves and stuff. Okay. I think in general, yeah. there was just a, a visual re had drawn of like, um, like before we were even making the comic of like wisteria moving like droplets of water around. And I just thought that was just a very neat image. I agree. And I, I, I like the idea because I felt like there was a, a coaxing process, but I wasn't sure if it, if it fell into, um, which Re, I think you described really well, the idea of pollination, you know, the idea of a, a sharing seed dispersal. And, and also this idea of, uh, you know, is there something that's exchanged between these sprites and um, vegetation or flora where it's almost like a, an energy exchange? Um, and I, I just, I was really interested about that, but I knew that if I came in just assuming like, so it appears that it's this, um, I could really wind up just really not looking like I know what I'm talking about. And I also think until I've talked to a creator, I'm still guessing. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with the following ads and then bring you right back to our conversation. Um, and I, I love the fact that, you know, one of the things that really stuck with me was how quickly Elena is able to come to grips with the fact that she's actually not the one who's making the garden uh, perform better. And she accepts it really quickly. And I wondered if that had anything to do with uh, 
something that you'd already decided about the character understanding? Did it develop while you were writing the story that was just for the the pacing and and story structure that it was sort of better for her to, to grasp it early? Or was it maybe more about the idea if she's doing this for her mom, then any help that's going to improve that opportunity to make this right the way she wants to is good in her eyes. It did develop as the story went on. Um, in the beginning, we didn't really have any idea who Elena was. And so once we hit that point, um, part of it was the fact that the book was going to be very short. Uh, we didn't have a lot of time to just wander around. But I also think that in general, kids are pretty quick to accept things. Um, how she responds afterward uh, is she's obviously upset about it. Uh, but I think ultimately she realized that what she wanted to accomplish would come about more easily with some help, even though up until this point, she seemed to be pretty confident that she could take care of this all on her own. I think kids are pretty understanding and they adapt rather quickly. And I think once you realize that you can do what you want with the help of someone who's, who's not trying to do it for any other reason than that they simply want to help and they have the help they can offer, it can be really easy to say, well, then we're doing this together and it's great to have help. Uh, I felt like that that came through really clearly. I just love the fact that it, it felt for me like she understood what was going on and, and it was difficult because she really wanted to be the one who could do this. But now she can still do it. She's just getting help she didn't know about. And now that she knows about it, well, we have an opportunity to develop their relationship. But then also we have this uh tension which is created because wisteria well she has to consider what this could mean for her new friends that she's forming and what they might feel about her letting herself be seen by a person and then even revealing what she is and what she can do um which i think is great because we get a chance now to move into some of these really uh fun characters who i really enjoyed i was wondering if you could start off by telling me about the character of moss uh where Moss came from and some key elements for, for those who might be, you know, thinking about reading it or reading a story and, and felt like they had an idea, but would, would love to know how close they are to being right about who Moss is and what, what the story brings about through her. Moss is cool. I just want to say that right now. She's my favorite character. And um, I think, She's sort of like, you know, she only has the one eye uh, that shows through her hair and she's like smaller. So I feel like that kind of gives the impression that she's shy. But I think also the way she composes herself is that like, it's less that she's shy and more she just doesn't have a lot to say. But when she does have something to say, like everyone tends to listen. Mm -hmm. And so I think she sort of has like a subdued confidence. And um, I think Re had some good points about Moss as well. I think in general, she's just, she doesn't stand out. Um, she's very observant, but you might not know that. Um, so I imagine she's the one who maybe best understands situations and others, even if she doesn't give a lot of outward indication of that. Oh, I, I, I like did she, want to say. Yeah, hey, go you ahead. Go, you go. <laughs> oh, I just oh, felt okay, like okay. You, you really nailed something with the idea of her having a great presence 
And I, I felt that um, that was then justified through your descriptions. You know, she's observant, she knows what's going on. She doesn't have to speak every time in order to have an impact when she does actually speak. Sorry, Joe, you were saying that. Oh yeah, I just wanted to bring up um, in my uh, original design, she was sort of, um, she would have like red bugs in her hair because she was based on, or I guess like when I was imagining her, it was sort of like Spanish moss. And um, so her hair was kind of like a little messier and she had uh, these like spirally glasses. And, um, but I feel like, I feel like after thinking about it for a little bit, it was just like, it'd be kind of weird for the sprites to have glasses. So we just had to like, I feel like we just came to the agreement, like she can do without the glasses. Okay. She definitely was one of the stranger designs, I think. Yeah. Did she go through a lot of uh, changes and um, revisions, or did it only take one or two decisions to sort of I feel get like, her down? I actually feel like she's still pretty similar, um, glasses aside. She's still, she still doesn't look quite as um, like prim and flowery as the others. Nice description, flowery, I agree. Uh, well then, let me also then move into uh, Mimosa and Amaranth. Am I saying Amaranth correctly? I think so, Amaranth, yeah, it's a weird okay. one. <laughs> I, I did my best to wrap my mouth around it correctly and try and spit it out there. Uh, tell us about Mimosa and Amaranth. How would you describe them to someone? Um, I imagine Amaranth is kind of like your cool older sister who lets you watch PG-13 movies. Um, and I think I think Mimosa is probably similar in that she's probably pretty open about what she thinks and what she wants, but I imagine she'd be a little sweeter. Um, we don't really get to see much of her, really. Yes, but for the moments when uh, she's on, uh, she caught my attention and... You know, if nothing else, maybe wonder, I wonder what else we might learn about Mimosa, maybe in the sequel. Uh, Joe, anything to add on that uh, for uh, either Mimosa or Amaran? I did want to um, chime in about Mimosa. I remember um, when I was like checking over like Ree's uh, pencils and I saw the like, I saw Mimosa pop up and I was like, wait, like, because Mimosa only shows up, she's probably in like three pages but she has a very striking design. And I was thinking like, why isn't she a part of the main cast? Like she's so cool. But um, <laughs> so here's hoping Mimosa gets to make a bigger splash in the sequel. But um, uh, the backstory. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do agree with Ree that like uh, Amaranth is like the cooler one. I, she, she mentioned that she is like the older sister, but I feel like for me, like Amaranth and uh, Nettle, the other uh, taller fairy in the group were kind of like, the cool rich ants that don't have any kids that like buy you a bunch <laughs> of presents like they they felt like the moms of the group i guess understood understood um <laughs> and I, I i did like that description the cool older aunts or the cool older sister those are both really good ones but yes uh she is very cool and you know definitely seems like the type that would let you watch a pg-13 movie <laughs> even when you're still only like you know 10 or 11 Especially if it's one that, you know, it's not so much about the scare. It's just about the thrill of getting to do something you're not supposed to because someone cool was like, hey, man, I know how it is. Let me help you out. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, like your favorite babysitter lets you stay up late. Genius. Oh, man. Yeah. It takes me back to. Yeah. 
that was always cool when you had the good way and you were like oh this is going to be a fun night this is going to be cool like mom and dad you guys can go out to dinner anytime you want <laughs> yeah go on go right yeah date night rocks okay so <laughs> um and then uh, also let me just ask about hortensia am i saying that one correctly yes it's always a question uh, when I'm pronouncing names or I, I mean, I'm one of the, I'll just go ahead and admit it. Uh, through a good chunk of my life, I have a problem with Greenwich because I read it as Greenwich as a child. And as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's Greenwich because that's how it looks and spells. And <laughs> on too many occasions, I'll want to say a word the way my, my brain reads it, but that's not always how it should be pronounced. So sometimes I'll go, did I say that correctly? Because that's how I wanted to say it. That doesn't mean it's the right way to say it. Uh, but Hortensia, who I thought was a very bright character. Um, I was wondering what you could tell, uh, tell folks about her, just give her a brief description for us. Just want to say that's the first time I've heard that said out loud. I also thought it was Greenwich, um, but um, Hortensia is um, she's actually named after hydrangeas, and so most most of the sprites really were just based on my own impressions of the plants that they're named after. Um, my parents grew a lot of plants when I was growing up, and so I feel like I have these very specific images of of them in my mind and. That's kind of where Hortensia came from. Um, hydrangeas, they're very summery. They're very bright. Um, they're kind of playful. They're kind of bouncy. So I wanted to translate that into a character. Awesome. Joe, any, uh, yeah. any thoughts on any of the characters, including Hortensia, as we go through? I do want to jump in and say never, never heard Greenwich pronounced Greenwich. So that's another a new one for me, but yeah, um, Hortensia was uh, just spherical and friendly, you know, like with the the shape of the hydrangeas and everything. Wow, you guys are making me feel so good about Greenwich, right? <laughs> uh, because you know, I'd see the, like I remember like reading as a kid, and the like I remember reading about different things, and I remember one of the big things that seemed to be a, a voice for art and community was the uh, village voice. And I'm like, well, what village? It was like Greenwich. So later I'm visiting and they're like, no, everyone says Greenwich. It's just the way it is. It's like, there's also a street in New York called, it's spelled Houston, which I think of Houston, Texas, but it's pronounced huh. Houston. And apparently you can really like identify yourself as not being from there. If you say Houston instead of Houston street. And it's, uh, <laughs> I, I would have, it's a learning curve. I never would have guessed. Mm-mm. Okay, to be fair, also, if it makes you feel any better, um, I have a tendency to just say words the way I say them until someone stops me. And so right before this, I actually looked up, I went ahead and Googled how to say amaranth just to make sure I did not have a recording of me saying amaranth incorrectly for the whole internet. See, I had a feeling this would be a good conversation, and now it's just being confirmed. Like that's just that's just icing on the cake. That's all. <laughs> I just really wanted to make sure. Well, it also because in comics sometimes I come across names where you would think it's um, pronounced one way, and then you hear it and you're going, "That's the exact opposite of the okay, yeah. okay." And um, <laughs> it's been a process. So here's the thing that I love as a as I'm laughing and, and grateful and love the fact that you went and looked it up so that you could pronounce it because sometimes I don't and I'm about to say something and I go I really should have looked that up 
Oh boy, open mouth, here goes. Um, were any of these characters also inspired by anyone either of you knew or know? And you sort of like could use that as a, for example, are you guys familiar with a comic artist who kind of does a painting style called Alex Ross? Um, I feel I, like I've heard the name. Okay. I'm not uh, sure. He, he tries to capture real life. So if you look at a comic book and you see Superman or Captain America, they look very um, cartoonish to a degree. And he turns around and finds real life models, either actors or real people he knows, and allow them pose and then try and draw them realistically. And sometimes he'll open you know, the curtain and say, here, look, these are all the life, you know, real people that I use as stand-ins for different characters that are kind of iconic, but he wanted to ground them to someone realistic. So I was curious with any of these characters, if there was um, a person, either one or both of you knew, that was a great reference point when you were you know, thinking about this character, creating any of these characters or bringing them to life on the page. Is that a good way of trying to set that up? I think so. Um, I can't really think of any specific people though. Um, I really feel like most of it came from um, just general inspiration from the plants themselves. Wonderful. Uh, when you were describing, you know, how, uh, for example, Hortensia and the idea of the hydrangea, I, I love the idea of connecting it to the plant. And I just wanted to uh, pose the uh, question as to whether or not there was anything on the um, person, human side, you know, sometimes um, there are things that can really connect when we're uh, looking for like, well, who is this similar to? Well, how would they respond to something? And then you can sort of figure out how to fold it in. But I love the idea that it sounds like so much of it was based on the, the personalities of these flowers. I did want to say um, in the very rough preliminary stages of uh, Elena's mom, I think we were like rewatching Seinfeld at the time. And so I was, I was imagining <laughs> Elena's mom as like kind of looking like Elaine, but um, I feel like in the fine, the final version of Elena's mom doesn't really resemble that, but like somewhere deep in her DNA, there's like a strand of Elaine from Seinfeld. <laughs> so the, the fun thing also is that while we're, you know, enjoying these characters and getting to watch them all, um, we get two different reflections uh, from Elena when she's uh, chatting with her friend from the other side of the fence, working with the sprites. And there's a moment when we get a chance to sort of see her re recalling all of those times that she was uh, walking through the garden with her mom as a child and reliving all these wonderful moments. Um, I was curious uh, about the uh, development of that. You know, is that something that you knew at some point you wanted to have her reflect back on how she was bringing something to life that she remembers as a child or did it um, happen in some other way that perhaps I'm not even close? I, uh, is this, um, I guess, kind of in reference to maybe like the, the rock that she has in the garden? Right. where it's um it has like toward the end it has the image of her and her mom on it that was actually i think the idea of a decorative rock was actually proposed by ari who was the one who picked up the book um the editor i mean i think it was a detail that she had uh she just kind of thrown out like oh what if she just had 
um, some kind of personalized item in the garden to show that it was hers. And from there, it turned into that stone that features a picture of her and her mom. And I think that was really what jump-started this idea of the garden being something that was created both by her and with her mother that has these sorts of memories associated with it and that she wants to bring back to life even though her mom isn't around as much. Anything to add on that, Joe? Um, I, I guess I just wanted to bring up that like, I feel like there was kind of like, it almost happened accidentally, but I think uh, reflecting on the question and then just kind of like uh, looking back at the book, the absence of Elena's mom is kind of felt by everybody in the book. Like even the uh, the sprites at the very beginning are sort of like mentioning how bad the garden is now that the that that gardener at the house like isn't tending to the plants. And so like it's sort of a character that isn't there at until the very end of the book, but all the characters kind of like know of them to some degree. I'm actually really glad you brought it up in that way because my my next question is that one of my favorite elements in the story is the impact that we see on Lena's mother who hasn't been in much of the story, but yet I felt it was captured so well just in that short arrival and appearance and I was wondering, was it difficult to capture the importance of her appearance in such a really, what I felt like a short series of panels that was also so equally powerful and poignant? It is really strange. Um, however, the course of the book, I feel like her mom is very present in her non-presence, where almost her, like the fact that she isn't there is kind of its own character. And so getting getting to the point where she appears it was actually it was a little difficult um i think i was afraid that we'd get there and readers would be like oh who is this and why is she here um because she doesn't show up until the very end and it's very brief but i feel like through building up the idea of her absence being so impactful that it was a little easier to introduce her and then have her appearance be equally as impactful Joe, any um, thoughts on that? I mean, I, I'm right there with you where you were saying it was a powerful experience. Like, um, I want to say uh, Ree was mostly in charge of uh, thumbnailing out those, uh, those last couple pages where um, Elena's mom shows up. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's a very beautiful sequence. I think uh, Ree was really flexing her comic muscles there. Uh, v, I, I love the fact that you point out that in this moment, which you know I felt was really important, that it, there was some difficulty involved, and I really like the the fact that you know it's something that anybody who's working on a project they almost want to hear from somebody else that it can be hard sometimes because what you want to do seems like it should be so straightforward, and then there's the actual execution of it, which can seem so difficult. And it sounds like uh, you know there was a challenge here but it was one that you were able to work through. And I think it's a, you know, as Joe put it better than I can paraphrase, a really lovely sequence. And I thought it worked out so well. It sounds to me like there was a lot of work and there was a challenge, but it also sounds like it was worth it. Would I be right on that one? It was definitely a challenge. <laughs> um, I think whenever you're writing a story in your head, you're thinking, um, I want A, B and C to happen. 
But what you're not thinking about until you really sit down to work on it is that you need to figure out a way to connect these things. And that's that's the hard part. Yeah, I'm reminded of the time when I'll, uh, I'll, I'll remember that it, so I remember like workshop classes for fiction where someone would talk about how, you know, they, they want the character to get out of the car and go inside or cross the street. And how on occasion, sometimes the teacher would just have to come in and say, okay, well, then you just write a sentence. So-and-so got out of the car and walked across the street. And, you know, it, it, they're describing what's a really simple approach. But then later they're saying, because we want to make that part easy, because the part that you're going to get to that's much harder is going to require that much more work and effort. And it was always this idea of like, you know, you recognize where it is you should be putting the effort in because of the importance behind it. And it's, it's going to be a challenge, but don't try and put that work and effort into the parts where you don't have to, because you're going to need that later. And when you really need it, you don't want to find out you exhausted a lot of imagination on other parts when you can really use it. Um, and I, I felt like there was a wonderful use of imagination um, in that sequence. And I, I thought Elena's mom, who hadn't been there, made such an appearance and such an impact that I, I, I made the connection really quickly in the story. And for me, it was a really wonderful scene. I felt what Elena had been working towards the moment I saw the delight that she and her mom got to share. So I, I thought it was a wonderful execution. And I thought, how do you pull something like that off? Because <laughs> it doesn't I'm really look glad you easy. liked it. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Uh, I, I think there's moments when you, you try and picture how you would try and do that. And when you realize you have absolutely no clue that you start looking at how someone else did it. You're like, how did they do that? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I think if you asked me to do it again, I wouldn't know what I did. See, now that's like every once in a while, I'll do a trick shot or, you know, write something down or afterwards I've had that experience where I'm like, yeah, I can't do that twice. I, I just can't. That was, <laughs> but I, I love the way it came out. I think it was a beautiful uh, description. And one of the things that I, I love about that moment and hearing you describe it is that it also brings up for me what it must be like over the process of you know, having this idea as a beginning, working with it together and bringing it to Oni as what you're going to be working on compared to what it's like when you've actually like finished and um, published and you've got it in your hands. Now, Joe, you'd alluded at one point to uh, a process of, you know, finessing and, and, and sort of like trying to come in and apply uh, a process to what you guys were doing. How did that come into play with your collaborating? And then also just tell me what it was like when all that collaboration was done and you guys could see, you know, some of the finished work in your hands, either proofs or, you know, the bound book. I guess um, a lot of the collaboration was, um, I feel like especially like laying the groundwork, uh, we would just like go to a Barnes and Noble and like sit in like the like cafe area for, you know, a handful of hours with a, uh, a rough script and we would kind of go through it with a red pen and we would each be like writing stuff down and um, sort of like uh, figuring out like questions that we needed to ask anything that sounded weird and um, I feel like it was just a lot of um, I mean it's it's like you said where it's like you you want a b and c to happen and you just need to like figure out 
how that can happen and make sure all the impactful moments are standing out and, you know, but also make sure the unimportant parts are still, uh, I guess, like enjoyable enough. I feel like a lot of it is just a matter of considering how music is kind of like uh, equal parts sound and silence where you have to know uh, which parts are going to shine, like which parts to uh, flex the artistic muscles on. And um, I don't know, Reed, you have any insight on this? Um, collaboration wise, I really just liked that there were so many things that I don't think would have been included in this book if we had not been working on this together. Kind of a nice little parallel, I guess, to what happens in the book, all that. Um, you can make something better with others than you could maybe make by yourself. But awesome. I, I keep thinking back to Joe was very, very um, determined to get in the sequence with the worm. I, I would not... I would not have uh -huh. thought up the worm, but he really <laughs> wanted that worm. And I think that's what I, what I think about anytime I think about this collaboration is there are so many points in this story that I just, I don't think it would have been the same book. Joe, there was could you maybe explain a little bit for folks who haven't read the book yet, what we're talking about with the worm? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, I could give you the whole whole shebang about the worm. <laughs> Hidden caboodle? Was, Let's get it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so like, I just remember there was the scene where um, Re was talking about it, and it's like, okay, Wisteria needs to be coming back from the gardener's house, and. Um, you know, she needs to be excited about like telling her friends something new, but then like is kind of immediately shut out by some outside force. And I like, I feel like um, there's a lot of times in my head where it's like, okay, first draft is always going to be best draft. And like the first thought that came in my head, like, okay, like what if a worm was just like there? <laughs> and I, I just wanted like the worm to kind of disrupt things. And in the rough, rough draft of this story, like the worm was going to be a bigger character and like it was going to like learn tricks. And like, <laughs> I think it's at some point there was going to be like a second worm. And in the very end, when they're all working in the garden, there's going to be this like two page spread of like a bunch of sprites all like airlifting this big worm into the garden. I don't know. I, I don't know what I was going through then, but I was just like, no, <laughs> worms are going to be great in this book. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, a director's cut will come out. We can have all those worm sequences in there. The worm cut. Yeah. Well, because it sounds like, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we've had the Snyder cut recently. It sounds like the worm cut, you know, just a lot was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, was yeah. there a colony of worms, a family? Were they a tribe? How did, you know, did they... I mean that would that would definitely be explored in the sequel. Like you gotta leave some questions. The sequel's gonna answered. be awesome. <laughs> yeah, 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 you have to leave mysteries. Do you have a working title for the sequel, by the way? Oh, or, we actually haven't <laughs> No pressure. We actually haven't um thought about a sequel just yet. Um we've been kind of playing through some ideas uh, of like actually creating something else, but maybe sometime in the future we'll get to come back to this. That's awesome. And bring the worms. Yeah, <laughs> and you know what? You got to bring the worms if you're going to do a sequel. That should be like a mantra now, dude. You're going to bring a sequel. You got to bring the worms. Uh, 
<laughs> hey, I was curious, you know, are there, was there one character or concept within the uh, uh, story development that changed the most, whether a design concept, anything else, um, where you saw the most dramatic or substantial change from originally? Because we were talking about Moss and, you know, the red flecks and the, the glasses. Was, was there anyone else who went through a process of change or was there one who went through the most or did we already cover it? with uh, um, I think it was definitely Elena um, and the initial concept um, she was actually a young adult and it was only that one page but I feel like Wisteria still more or less stayed the same in a lot of ways but Elena was kind of a mystery um, she didn't seem very rambunctious you don't really learn much about her but she she went through you know, this this process where you were sort of like working her, you know, development through the story and also maybe sort of discovering things when you would have exchanges with her in Wisteria? Yeah, I definitely think having her, um, because on the one page story, um, it ends pretty, obviously it's one page, not a whole lot happens on it, but you never actually see a real interaction between the two. And so I think having more of that kind of brought her character out and also, as Joe um, pointed out at some point to me, we also made her worse at gardening. But Wisteria, I think, stayed more or less the same. Okay. Uh, so that was a, about the majority of like the questions I had scripted, written down. But I'm also aware of the fact that as good as I try to be, as much as I try and do, there's always a chance I'm going to miss something. Um, and so my favorite sort of question as we get towards like you know the end of a conversation or as I'm as I've worked through all the questions that I came up with is to turn around and say what did I miss you know more importantly is there a question you would have liked to hear me ask that you've already got the answer ready for and you're like oh if they ask this question I've got an answer but then I didn't ask the question which means either one of two things happen we end the interview and I never ask the question and we never get your answer or I give you the opportunity to say you know what I'd love for you to know about it's, it's not something you ask, but this is something I, I'd love for you and anyone listening to know about this story. Uh, who wants to take first swing at that idea? I feel like you asked like all the right questions because I definitely like going into this, I didn't know any, any of the answers to these questions. So like, I definitely had to like <laughs> sit down and think for a good bit. So because uh, yeah I remember like getting the email and I was like okay definitely gonna have to like chew on this for a bit but um so yeah I, I can't think of anything other than like I feel like for future guests on your podcast you should ask them if their book doesn't have a large surplus of worms like where's the worms I think I'm gonna have to start asking that and reference them back to this conversation and be like whoa you should really catch up so Re and Joe sort of explain <laughs> this all you should really We're listen kind to of, episode. Uh... Kind of on the cutting edge here. <laughs> we figured out what the rest of them are still trying to learn. Worms. It's <laughs> all about the worms. Uh, <laughs> Re, how about for you? Did, did I miss a question? Is there a question you had an answer ready for? You're like, he didn't even ask it. Like, and, and um, now I you have a chance to. <laughs> I can't really think of anything. Um, I'm kind of with Joe in that I feel like, honestly, your questions gave me an opportunity to kind of think a little deeper about all of this I feel like when you're actually making the book it's it's simultaneously kind of like feverish where you're like 
just trying to get through it and you're not thinking too too hard about anything but it's also you kind of hit a stride where everything becomes very humdrum and I don't know it, it was nice to have this little reflection back on it oh that's my pleasure I would love to follow up with you guys in the future on any projects you do and offer the same kind of reflection um, <laughs> because this was a great conversation for me. It was, it was great talking about your craft, your process. And when you were talking about the idea of it just being like humdrum day to day, I'm always reminded of this concept that when I first discovered it, I loved and I, I still love it. Uh, the, uh, the Taoist approach of the Wu Wei concept to, to be without being, to do without doing. And I feel like when you get into a project at some point, you're so busy doing it. You're not thinking about doing it, you know, uh, when my teacher in a religion class asked me to describe it once, I was like, oh, Wu Wei is like brushing your teeth. You don't think about wetting the brush or putting the toothpaste on. You just wet the brush, get the toothpaste, brush the teeth, spit, you're done. <laughs> and I think sometimes when you're in a project, once you've gotten to the point of you know what you're doing and now it's just a process of executing it on a, you know, whatever your routine is, you're just doing it. You're not thinking about doing it because, well, thinking is not going to help you get it done. You just got to get it done. <laughs> you really can't think too hard about it. You have to kind of try to just uh, get into the routine of things. <laughs> that sounds like it was really valuable. And from what I saw, you guys had a really, uh, it appears to me through the story, a great rhythm. And I thought that came across so well in the story. Um, I think others might feel the same way. And I'm just curious, are there any ways out there that you guys communicate with others that you would be okay with sharing uh, some in, enjoy social media platforms some uh, like you to go to their website and fill out a form but if there's a way that someone wanted to say hey joe hey re i want to talk to you more about your book and is it possible that i could I is there a platform you'd like to let anyone know about today where they could find you reach you talk to you um i feel like the easiest way to find me is typically just on Twitter, which is um, my handle is rebrego. It's just my name without the A in a brego. But um, also, I have a contact form on my website, uh, reabrego.com. And I'm always open to hearing from anybody, really, um, either through that or my email or my Twitter. Um, either way is really fine with me. Wonderful. Thank you. Joe, how about you? And um, pretty much same here. My uh, on my Twitter, if you just want to contact me there, it's uh, Joe Obligations. That's just the name Joe, and then Obligations. And um, and then likewise, uh, if you would prefer emailing, there's uh, my email Joe.Obligations at gmail.com. and I'm I'm very open to hearing anything, any thoughts concerns questions requests uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome i i mean i know that after i read the book and i had the chance to uh reach out to uh, tara from over at oni tara thank you again for introducing me to another great book and creators uh, i had questions so i can only imagine after reading the book hearing this conversation others are going to have questions as well because we covered a lot you guys were so great. You offered so much wonderful insight. It was, it was a lot of fun for me. I was glad that I was able to ask the right questions to, to get us there. And uh, I, I honestly think Joe, when you were like, yeah, I think you answered, you know, you asked all the questions. I was like, Hey, 
<laughs> I mean, you really did. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really feel like I'm walking away from this conversation, like knowing a lot more about the book that we wrote, honestly. Like, I feel like I understand it to a, a deeper degree that like I, I hadn't previously thought about. Wow. Okay. So see, my job is to compliment you guys and talk about how good you are. So I'm really flattered. I'm very grateful. And uh, that was very gracious of you both to share. I, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you both for sitting down with me today, for sharing your story, for talking more uh, about Sprite and the Gardener. It's from Oni Press. Um, find it. Thank me later. And then they just let you know how you can ask both Joe or V any questions you might still have. And with that, I'm gonna bring our conversation to a close. Thank you both. Yeah, and thank you for inviting yeah. us. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's, it's been a treat, it's been a yeah. delight. It's actually my first podcast. It's very exciting. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I got yeah. to be your, that's huge. So, yeah, I got uh, nervous and drank a bunch of water. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few things I love more than ending an episode with laughter. I love this great conversation with Joe Witt and Rhea Brago as we talked about the Sprite and the Gardener, and along the way included some insights about characters, oh, those kids who may potentially show up in a future episode, but if nothing else, provided an ambiance while creating the Sprite and the Gardener, and also, I think most importantly, how valuable worms can be to a conversation a story, and apparently so much more. Once again, uh, I'm grateful to Joe Witt and Rhea Brago for taking the time to share their story, to talk it over with me and offer up their insights for all of us listening. Join me soon for upcoming episodes of Storytelling with Seth. I think you know how to do all that subscribing, rating, and reviewing on your own. And if this is something you enjoy... I look forward to seeing you next time here on Storytelling with Seth.